resources instead of being poured into healthcare, right? We know that black communities are twice as likely to not have a hospital within their community. We know that black communities are, are even, even, even if you look at um, drugstores, CVS pharmacies, um, Kroger's, uh, our, our Walgreens, 70% of all those drugstores are in predominantly white communities, not in black communities. We have health, our hospital deserts, we have pharmacy deserts. If you believe we can change the narrative, if you believe we can change our communities, if you believe we can change the outcomes, then we can change the world. I'm Rob Richardson. Welcome to Disruption Now. Welcome to Disruption Now. I'm your host and moderator, Rob Richardson. With me is a friend of mine. We sometimes uh, go, go, go together on, uh, on, um, on um, uh, Roland Martin Unfiltered. Uh, Ebony J, Dr. Ebony J, Hilton, I should say, an anesthesiologist. And she's also a social advocate and, and is using her uh, position to uh, help people and, and to lower the disparities. Uh, Dr. Hilton, how are you? Yeah, I'm doing great. How are you? Hey, I'm hanging in there. You know, um, uh, we're seeing a light at the end of the tunnel when it comes to this pandemic. Thank God. Right. I mean, at least I can I can tell you that I, I'm relieved. I'm ready to get out and go travel. And, uh, you know, so I, I think I want to really start with this, the the, the pandemic where we're at now, um, what you've learned in this moment, because I think there's a lot that's happened. Obviously, the last year was a crazy year. Um, it, it, politically, I believe it ended in, ended well. And I'm not just talking about for Democrats. I'm talking about for people that believe in sanity and science. Uh, but uh, we still, I mean, I think the the pandemic and the protests coming together really, I think, highlighted for people things that we already knew about the disparities in health. Like, what do you think we can do at this moment to really uh, change the trajectory of, of uh, uh, you know, of these disparities that are going on in the healthcare industry specifically. Right. Uh, well, you know, it's, it's one of these things, I think 2020, there was this intersection of pandemic and protest. We saw um, how, if you truly dive into the data, you will see that the same risk factors that are present that leads to um, the reasons why black men are more likely to die at the hands of police brutality are the same exact risk factors that lead to black men losing three years of life expectancy in six months related to COVID-19. It's the same thing. And so um, one of the Interesting. things- Interesting. Tell me, tell me how those are the same thing. Like how, how are you bringing that together? Right. Um, because it's, it's, if you look at where police brutality, um, it, it all kind of stems from what's happening within the communities, right? Over-policing of communities. Um, resources, instead of being poured into healthcare- Right. We know that black communities are twice as likely to not have a hospital within their community. We know that black communities are are even 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 if you look at um, drugstores, CVS pharmacies, um, Kroger's uh, our our Walgreens, 70 percent of all those drugstores are in predominantly white, not in black communities. We have health, our hospital deserts. We have pharmacy deserts. Because when the state allocates funds, instead of it putting it into healthcare centers for the black and brown communities, we instead have over-policing of our communities, right? And we know over-policing leads to more people being pulled over, leads to, unfortunately, um, black men being three times more likely to be killed um, by police officers, um, regardless if they're armed or unarmed. Um, it leads to one in every thousand black men can expect to die from police brutality within their lifetime. Um, yeah, those, those risk factors of literally what is your zip code can help to determine whether or not you're gonna have um, this contact and this interactions 
with police departments, unfortunately. But the same thing happens on the on the medical side. Your zip code is more important determinant of health than your genetic code. Um, it's not that black people are um, have weaker DNA. <laughs> it's not that's not what's happening. Um, no, we wouldn't have made it this far if that was true. <laughs> oh, incredibly. I mean, literally, if you look at West Africans that come to the United States of America, their health outcomes are actually on par or better than white Americans that have always lived here. It's their children's children that start to have the um, racial health disparities that we see as far as African-Americans. So, um, so yeah, so it's not, it's not our genetic makeup. It literally is things like Flint, Michigan with water supply, right? If you give right. me water that's laced with lead, then yes, I'm going to have a higher incidence of of cancer formation, right? Um, and, and I think when you when you when you talk about this, uh, Dr. Jade, a lot of the conversation with people uh, they think a Democrat Republican, which is not that simple, or or they think okay, well, what you're saying is we need to spend more money on resources and doing things, and maybe, but that's not necessarily true. When people talk about uh, reimagining policing. You think about all these communities. Uh, it was uh, I think Malcolm X talked about it. Like there is no community there. There are, there are no communities that have more policing than black communities. But somehow the communities still don't aren't aren't safe a lot of times. So what's the issue here? Like how, how like just because there's a there's a larger presence of policing or you spend more money on policing doesn't mean the community is more safe. And you really have to look at how much resources I can tell you. Almost in every community, resource that's never adjusted, never looked at, never cut is the police department. It's like untouchable. And, and that's usually the biggest line item in every single city, but yet we have all these other disparities. So it's really, when you talk about, we have to look at the, these things in a comprehensive manner and and what the, uh, what COVID-19 did is it, I think it was the great exposure because these, these disparities were there. Uh, It probably exacerbated them, but it also exposed them in a way that people really got to see the disparities in ways that they didn't. I mean, not only were they there, Black people, we had higher death rates for nine of the 15 leading causes of death before COVID, right? Um, We died at higher rates at younger ages. We not only had higher death rates for maternal mortality, so so women in the birthing process um, and a year after, up to a year after their baby is born, dying um, at three to four times the rate of, of white women. Not only were we burying our children at two times the rate before their first birthday than um, white babies, we had higher death rates in pretty much all the cancer types you can think of, lung cancer, colon cancer, breast cancer, prostate cancer. Um, we saw with um, Black Panthers, right? We all were like, wait, where is this coming from? Um, yeah, because Black people, we, we don't talk about it often. Um, there's not really any mention and we're talking about breast cancer awareness, for instance, you typically we see a white woman's face, but black women have higher death rates in every single state of the United States of America related to breast cancer. And we die at younger ages with more aggressive forms. We die at younger ages, um, from cardiovascular disease, heart failure, um, you know, strokes, we die at higher rates, um, related to it. So this is not anything new COVID-19. The only reason why I got so much attention was that it was the deaths were happening so fast that you can't ignore it. Right. But um, these disparities as far as racial health outcomes have been the same since literally the founding of America. And even before that, you know, like literally yeah. since we, got here, or we were brought here. So and yeah. And when we're talking about police 
and the money that's associated with policing, um, what we have to remember is that whenever, especially with the black and brown community, when we associate policing with a, with a potential threat to our bodies, when you see those blue lights hit, or you see a police officer circling through your neighborhood, we have to remember that mental health is physical health. So when you see that police car and your heart rate starts to beat really fast because you're afraid, yep. breathing pattern starts to change, that's because a hormone in your body made your, your end organs, your end organs, meaning your heart and your lungs, act differently. And what are those hormones? Well, we call that your fight or flight system. So the same thing if a tiger was chasing you and you needed to, to run and get away, um, that's the same response that you get when you see a gun pointed to your face. That's the same response that you get when someone says that you come from, can I cuss on the stage? You can cuss as much as you want. All right, good. If someone says you come from shithole countries, the response, the anger, that is also the same system of this um, fight or flight system. So we call that your hypothalamus talks to your pituitary gland, which is all in your brain, talks yep. to your adrenal glands, which sit right above your kidneys. And those adrenal glands release hormones called your cortisol, your, um, your glucagon, and your catecholamines. Catecholamines are adrenaline, right? For like a better words. And so those hormones literally change the way your heart functions. So it causes your, your heart to beat faster. It causes your blood vessels to, to constrict, which means high blood pressure. It causes your kidneys. These hormones literally cause your kidneys to retain sodium and water, which increases your overall blood volume, which leads and can lead to heart failure. It causes your liver to process sugars differently um, or literally wow. to create sugars um, and to mobilize fat and proteins. It also causes you to literally be immunosuppressed. Um, yes, immunosuppression. Um, and is that one of the reasons why we do see the development of cancers at, um, for, for black people? It also causes your pancreas have to have decreased insulin secretion and leads to insulin resistance. So these, this fight or flight, this constantly being angry, this constantly being unsafe as a racial minority in a majority country causes these um, fluxations and chronically elevated um, stress hormones and it's been linked to diabetes, hypertension, obesity, to um, infant and maternal mortality, to cancer progression, you name it, it's all tied to each other. It's not just, oh, I feel bad. Yeah. It's a consequence to it. And then you add COVID on top of that, which just accelerates these uh, disparities and, and really makes things worse because you're introducing a new agent that people don't uh, aren't used to. And, 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 and now they have to deal with that too. So therein is like, you know, it goes back to what you've talked about a lot. And I want to get to, you said the narrative would be that uh, black people are resistant to taking the vaccine. And that's the reason why a lot of uh, black folks aren't vaccinated, but you said there's a different narrative to that. Right. Um, you know, very early on J December, I got, I received my first vaccination December 15th and the second January. I'm getting mine this Saturday. Hallelujah. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. Go yeah. ahead. <laughs> one of those things, you know, in January, uh, December, January, and February, you know, I'm, I made statements that even if a black person wanted to get vaccinated, they, they couldn't throw money to get it. Um, literally the way the policies were written, black people were largely left out of the descriptors of who qualified to be vaccinated. Um, even though we knew racial health disparities existed, even though we knew 
that black people were three times more likely to be hospitalized at that point and twice as likely to die from COVID-19, more likely to be infected with COVID-19. But when they came up with the policies of the phase 1A groupings, they said, well, we're going to vaccinate healthcare workers first and people who belong to nursing homes. Well, if you look at the demographic of people who are actually healthcare workers, 60% of healthcare workers are white, um, 16% of healthcare workers are black. If you look at nursing home residents, it costs money to place your family members into a nursing home, um, of which there's a wealth gap in America <laughs> that we can talk about the systemic racism that played into that. But um, but with nursing home residents, 78% of nursing home residents are white. Even when you go down to the phase 1B, they then said, okay, now we're going to open it up to 75 and older. Well, unfortunately, the life expectancy for Black people before COVID was only 75. So when you say and older, we're not in that group. <laughs> in fact, right. if you look at the U.S. population for 65 and older, right, literally 65 and older, 77% are white. Wow. Only 9% of 65 and older are black. We don't. Wait, say that again. Only 9% of 65 and older are black. We don't. I didn't know that see that age group. This is, I mean, it's a major problem, again, because of all the things I've talked about earlier. Black people having higher death rates before COVID. From all the common things that kill people, we're dying at younger ages from those. And even with the phase 1B, so they initially said 75 and older, then they dropped it down to 65 and older again, which is still largely excluded, um, or, or, or at least heavily populated by white people, let's just say it that way. Um, but you can also, they also said then we're going to do employment. So we're going to say essential workers, teachers, police officers, um, firemen, um, grocery store workers, and, and transportation um, agents. But when we look at even employment, what we know is that we all, we had a, a health crisis, but also a financial devastation during 2020, where many millions of people lost their jobs, right? And in fact, by April, there was a, um, a study out of New York Times published that by April, less than 50% of all black adults actually had a job. So this, wow. yeah, so this phase rollout literally tied the priority of who would be vaccinated on age, of which black people die at younger ages, and on employment, of which black people are more likely to not have a job. In a, in a disease process where black people were more likely to die. So... Yeah. Yeah. So this wow. race neutral, this race neutral policy, if you truly look at the numbers, ends up being pro-white. So we shouldn't be surprised at the point or the fact that at this point, 70 percent of all persons that are fully vaccinated are white Americans. Well, this, that's a great point you you you, you uh, bring up there. When we look at a lot of policies that um, report to be race neutral, <laughs> when you don't when you're not intentional about race, you end up being detrimental to black and brown people because, right. because by default, <laughs> you have a system that's built against them. And unless you're intentional about being inclusive, looking at the disparities, you will, you will get the results you talked about. So you, you, you mentioned that uh, uh, President Biden should have a uh, secretary of equity. So walk me through what you think about that. And, and I, I just love to get your, your feelings because I'm, I like the idea, but then I have some concerns about it, but I want to hear what you think about it. Right. Yeah, because I mean, like this policy, this policy is not race neutral. It's actually pro-white. And I just want to put that out there um, just based on the definition of the criteria by which they use um, it. It selects itself for whiteness. Now, with that being said, um, 
we had my, my consulting firm, Goodstock Consulting, we we wrote the Congressional Black Caucus before vaccines rolled out. Um, but in thinking of the totality of what happened in 2020, again, with this intersection of pandemic and protest, what we know, and again, as we just stated, these same risk factors that make Black people more likely to have um, you know, insults from the police are the same risk factors that lead us to dying at higher rates from COVID-19, are the same risk factors that are associated with our children being expelled from school more often, are the same risk factors um, that lead to black and brown people being um, less likely to own our houses, right? Um, right. Same, it's the same risk factors for all of these things. And so our thought was, instead of us for generations, we've reported these same exact disparities, nothing has changed, right? We're, right been dying at higher rates for generations. We've been poor and having this wealth gap for generations. We've been not able to afford to buy our own homes for generations. Instead of reporting the same um, disparities, we need to have some accountability tied to it because we are taxpayers. So if I am giving my money to the government, we should have an entity that says for every policy that you push out, that you are using taxpayers' dollars to fund Right. We must have a health. We must have an equity lens tied to it. So just like we have a Department of Defense and Department of Housing and Department of Transportation and Education, we should have a Department of Equity with a Secretary of Equity um, that literally, with this department, you have representatives that sit in each of the other departments. So the Department of Transportation to look, and they feed information. They come together with the Secretary of Equity to say, let's look at all these. How is it targeting um, the marginalized communities, whether that's along the lines of race, gender, uh, religion, communication, sexual orientation, those persons that we know have these disparities? How, if we push this bill out, like this vaccine rollout, let's look at it with an equity lens. Is it going to be dispersed amongst all citizens equally? Or if we see racial health disparities exist with COVID-19, should we be doing an age adjusted along the lines of race, right? It may be that, yes, for white people, 65 and older is fine. But for black people, since y'all are dying at younger ages and you have a, a shorter life expectancy, your grouping is 45 and older. Let's go, right? Those types of things from the foundation, not afterwards. Right. Now they can say, oh, look, at, you know, right now, again, we still only have 7%. Um, of black people that are included in that fully vaccinated pool. But in three more months, they can clap hands and say, oh, we did a great job because now black people have finally caught up. We're six right. months into this, right, right? Right, right, And so don't clap for me if equity came because everyone else had already gotten, that's not equity. Yeah, and I agree with you. And I, and I like the way you stated uh, how the Department of Equity should be. I mean, my initial reservation was I thought I think about what a lot of corporations have in the in the in the inclusion department is, you know, the place to go to to file a glossy report yeah. and then, you know, maybe have a party and then say, wow, we've done great work. Right. And that's that's pretty much what happens in a lot. And, 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 and it's usually one black person, a black woman, a black man. They're in charge of it with no actual power, but they can say, listen, we got this department. So that that was my only concern to I me. Mean, it does have to be integrated into the leadership and into the thought process and into the policy on the front end, not on the, Oh, we did this. Uh, you guys check off. I mean, which is, which is usually how, 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 how it goes down in institutions. So right. I agree with you in terms of how it should work. 
Right, because it's not it's not a DEI, you know, as we typically. That's not how it looks in my brain. Literally, what I would expect from the Secretary of Equity is they come up with metrics for each other department to say these are things that we're going to track from year to year to year to see that if Department of, of you know um, Defense they have seven hundred forty billion dollars for their budget, right? Yep. What's wrong with that? And if we can look at um, at certain metrics to see over the course of time, have you improved or not? And your budget will be shaped based on whether or not you're making movement in these areas. But that's the way that the public can have some accountability um, or being able to track these, these departments. Do we know what's happening out of each of these departments? Is it public facing? You know, can, can we collectively say, hey, Department of Education, what are you doing for our children? Um, in a, in a form that's digestible and and cur- and and how do you say in real time being given back to the public, yeah. um, they can say literally again, this is what the the metrics we we're looking at, whether that's expulsion rates um, and trying to investigate what leads to that with our black and brown children um, to see if this July versus next July have we cut those numbers down, have we poured resources into wherever we find the weakness of that system to be. Um, that's the accountability that I want. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. All right. I want to, I want to focus a little bit and pivot a little bit to talk about the vaccine. Uh, cause specifically with our community, uh, although what you said is true that there was this narrative that we wouldn't, uh, get it cause we didn't want it. There, there, there is some resistance mm-hmm. and, um, and it's based upon the reasons you said earlier, the, the, the mistrust of the government and people in power, okay. you know, uh, not believing that this vaccine is going to do what it says it's going to do, or that it's uh, it's going to affect Black people differently. So I want to have, I really want to go through some uh, COVID nineteen facts and myths because I think it's important for people to hear from somebody like yourself, who is a doctor, who is on the ground, who has studied this, who has seen this, and you can and you kind of just take us through it. So people uh, dying from from taking the vaccine. What are the numbers on that? Because people are saying, so there's some people that believe like, oh, you have a 1% chance of death and all that. And they say you have a 1% chance of death with COVID. So I'll take my chances. I've literally heard educated people with multiple degrees who are seemingly very smart people say this, believe it. What say you? And and, and it's unfortunate. Yeah. No, it honestly is unfortunate because there there is greatness that comes out of social media and then there's things like this that come out of social media because I would I would honestly ask them, show me what data you're looking at. Uh, we're looking at the clinical trials, for instance, um, and, and even beyond that, Pfizer and and Moderna they they all pull their information. But what we know is that, for instance, when I'm in the operating room, I give out antibiotics for surgeries. Yep. For every two thousand patients, one will have a reaction to penicillin, right? Penicillin allergy. What we saw with this um, vaccine, every million people, we had 11 people that had reactions, 11. Now, that's not- So say that again, for every million? It was 11. Okay. Okay. Now, that's not to say, for especially for those 11 people, that's the world, right? But those 11 people, a majority of them actually had history of severe allergies. We know that some people like me, I don't have allergies to anything. I can eat what I want. I can get bit by uh, a bee, an ant. Um, 
I don't have allergy. I don't have pollen, you know, nothing like that. My sister has had an anaphylactic reaction, anaphylaxis, meaning that she literally, her, her airway started to close when she was bit by a fire ant. Right. Right. So, and people like my sister who literally has to carry around an EpiPen in her pocket, in her pocketbook and one in her car, just in case she ever comes across a fire ant that she cannot avoid, right? Um, out in the world. For those persons, then yes, if you have, if you've had severe reactions like that, that you have required having to go into the emergency room for someone to help you to breathe again because you you have a severe peanut allergy or severe, I can understand right. the person saying, I need to, I'm nervous about it, right? Um, but regardless for all persons, I've, I've handed out vaccines and um, participated in a, a few other vaccinating vaccinations um, centers. We keep everyone there for at least 15 minutes, right? To just say, we just vaccinated you, we're just gonna watch you. You, right. don't, feel, you don't leave until you feel, um, that that you are safe, but at least 15 minutes, you have to stay here, right? Um, and that's what you're gonna see with these vaccination stations. That's what we're doing to build this confidence that we're just not vaccinating you and, and sending you off. Now, that being the case, you know, with the when we're looking at risk benefit of getting a vaccine versus getting COVID-19, what we know is that there is not um there's not enough. Before, before you get to that, have there been any confirmed deaths from the vaccine? No, I don't think this. So that's important. Like there have been this many confirmed deaths from the yeah. vaccine. Zero. That's, that's where the social media thing comes from. Like Zero I said, compared to how many deaths we got with COVID-19 in, in America five, alone. Five, is, over 550,000 okay. confirmed in America alone. So zero, <laughs> 550,000 deaths. So your chance of vaccine, zero to getting COVID-19, uh, 550,000 deaths. Right. That's, what, that's what we got, right? So go ahead. And, 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 that, and, and that doesn't include getting ho- people that survive that are long haulers, people that survive but still have to go to the hospital for months and, and be on a hill. So we're- And ahead. I'm glad you brought up long haulers because that's an important- Because well, I, I know two long haulers who are, in, who are in great condition. Right, what are their symptoms? Um, uh, so one, just breathing breathing issues, not being able, just not being their, their full- uh, their, 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 their immune system is not all the way back. Okay. Um, uh, just breathing, just, just, you know, they have trouble catching their breath still. Um, that's pretty much their, their symptoms, but that's, again, these are people that, that were athletes <laughs> and they still are having trouble. If people, if your listeners are wanting to do some research, they can actually Google, um, the Red Sox pitcher. I want to say his name was Eduardo Rodriguez. I think that was his name. Um, you can also look at the um, incoming freshman quarterback for Georgia State, 18 years old, years old. The pitcher, I think he was 27 years old. They can look at um, University of Pennsylvania, um, the athletes of that school, because what they were showing was these people literally had mild to asymptomatic COVID-19. They weren't in the hospital. They weren't. They may have had loss of taste and smell. They may have had a little cough little fever, that's it, right? But when they did scans of the heart for the University of Pennsylvania, 15 to 30% of all athletes that had COVID-19 with those mild to to barely any symptoms, 15% when they scanned them um, had inflammation around their heart. The picture for wow. the, the for the Boston Red Sox. So back up, back up. Mm-hmm. So even when people that didn't have any symptoms, when they did a, a MR, was it MRI or what was it? MRI. 
MRI of their heart, they show that 15% of them had an inflamed heart. Is that what you just said to me? Right. And if you wow. look at the Boston Red Sox picture, um, like I said, I think his name is Eduardo Rodriguez. Um, he couldn't play for the season. Um, and the last report I saw from him in September was that he was finally cleared to be able to walk because of the impact, the inflammation around his heart. The incoming um, freshman quarterback for Georgia State, he's now, um, he was 18, um, he's now recovering from inflammation around his heart, but he was also not able to start. Wow. And, um, and what we're seeing is that studies show 30% of all those who've recovered from COVID-19 have these long hauler symptoms of inflammation around the heart, of um, their brains, just not their attention span is off. I've, they, I've heard that too. Are they chronically tired? Are they having chronic pain issues now? Like their extremities hurt, um, their lungs, their shorter breath. And the craziest thing is, because you'll hear a lot of people say, oh, well, I got COVID and the only thing I lost was my taste and smell. That always confused me because I'm like, you do realize that means that the virus literally got to your brain. infected your brain and caused your brain to not function right. And the question that I have is, what does that do to the incidence and development of Alzheimer's possibly at an earlier age? So instead of you being 60, 70 years old, when you start to become demented, that you may be 30, 40 years old? Um, what does it do to the incidence of multiple sclerosis or Parkinson's disease? Um, you know, these things that we know have, if you have scarring or inflammation in those areas of the brain, will we see development of that? With these people who have inflammation around their heart, do we, you're 18, 19 years old now, and you had to not play a sport because your heart had gone into shock at this point. Right. That due to the development of heart failure. Will we see you instead of having heart failure when you're, you know, 60, 70 years old, will you be developing heart failure at 40, 50 years old? Will we need, will we have an increase in heart transplant requirements? Will you have AFib, a flutter because the conduction, the way your heart beats, will it become abnormal at a young, younger age? There is so much that has potential because of that inflammatory process that when people say, I don't know if I want to get this vaccine, I'll risk getting COVID because I might only get a loss of my taste and smell. I'm like, you just don't know. Yeah. And like I said, I know somebody like I just had this, I had this conversation with my, with one of my fraternity brothers. Yeah. He's a really smart guy and used to um, uh, he did IT in the healthcare industry. Right. And, and his um, and his analysis was, well, you know, <clears throat> as long as everybody else gets it, I, I don't necessarily want to get it. And here's his reasoning. He started listing reasons and I started debunking them. But one of his reasons uh, is something that I think <clears throat> a lot of people bring up and I want to bring up with you. They say, oh, well, if I take it, I can still get it. So why would I take the vaccine and I can still get it anyway? What do you say to that? So for one, if you look at every clinical trial, and that's not only for um, Pfizer and Moderna, but also Johnson and Johnson, and even with AstraZeneca now, who they're they're going through some things. But yeah, let, I would tell people, yeah, let's just right. do the other ones. Go the, ahead. The that we um, we have so far, but but with those, what we see is that the, the when we're talking about vaccines, what we're trying to concentrate on is we're trying to make your body have a a defense on day one should you get infected. The vaccine isn't like an umbrella when you walk out in the, in the rainstorm where it keeps all raindrops from you. No, right? 
if you're going out in COVID and someone coughs directly in your face because neither you're wearing a mask, COVID can still get within your body, right? But what we're hoping is that if you have a vaccine on day one, because antibodies are already circulating within your body, right? That if that one virus gets into your body, instead of it going from one and being able to multiply and becoming 10 and being able to multiply and becoming a thousand, being able to multiply and becoming a million in your body before your immune system has had chance to kick in and start producing these antibodies. If you have a vaccine, immediately as soon as it as soon as that covid vaccine our covid virus enters into your system you may go from 1 to 100 viruses but you won't get to that million to that surge of a viral load because it's immediately ready instead of it taking 2 or 3 days before you ramp up to to mount this immune response and some people may say you know well that's only difference of 2 and 3 days 2 and 3 days in terms of covid it means the world because of the inflammatory process, if we can stop your viral load, if we can stop this virus from literally destroying cells, right, and causing this inflammatory process, we have a chance to save your life. And that's what we're seeing with all three vaccines is that you see there is no severe COVID cases, meaning that even those that tested positive from COVID, they weren't testing positive because they were in the hospital on a ventilator. There's no people on a ventilator who's been vaccinated. There's no people who have died from COVID-19. Okay, that has been that's been vaccinated. And those are two key things that we are really trying to, I don't know, prevent and why people um, get into this debate of, oh, but I can still get COVID. Yeah, but but you didn't die from it. (laughs) You didn't die. And the other part of it is. Yeah. Yeah. And and then there's the collective thing that doesn't always work for people, but we can actually stop the spread. And what I told him is like, well, we'll. Because he, he was like, well, if everybody else in this room takes the vaccine and I don't, then we'll be a hurt, hurt immunity. I said, but if too many people think like you, we'll never get there. And how selfish is that? The only persons that should ever say, well, if everybody else do it and I don't have to do it, should be a child. Okay. And adults, we really have to start thinking about that because this is when it's not time for you to be selfish. Yes, you can be selfish in ways because your life matters. But we have to think about the fact that right now, Children are dying from this. We buried babies and yeah. I did a couple week old babies from COVID-19. We're exposing these children. When I said that we have long hauler symptoms, there's a study that literally showed that 33% of children in their study were long haulers. Okay. Wow. Wow. Think about the impact when these babies, these five-year-olds, 10-year-olds are getting infected with COVID-19, their bodies are still developing. Now you, which are you, I was almost cussed again. You would go, go, go ahead, go ahead, go, go. You go cuss, 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 cuss woman, cuss. You can. I think, no, because when I think about kids, I do get amped up because yeah, get amped up. It's okay. Right. I like the passion. Right, because adults, we have a responsibility to do our part to try to protect them, right? And so that person who is old enough to have a conversation with you shouldn't be thinking, oh. I'm going to let everyone else around me get get um, vaccinated so I'm protected. They can pass the virus on to a child, right? Yeah. Um, you got to think about that. How do I reduce the likelihood? Um, because when and, and the reason why, um, again, that, you know, is it is just so important is the long-term consequences of what this will have on someone's life. We don't know. And so for these children, who are not right now, literally cannot be vaccinated. Um, 
you know, we're, we're starting to enroll them in clinical trials and we'll hopefully have some data on that by the end of, of summer, but we don't anticipate kids being able to be vaccinated until 2022. Right. Right. So in this meantime, below 16, you're saying, right. right. I think 16 and older has been, I mean, my niece is 16 and Yes, but but yeah, but I, when I'm talking about babies, I'm thinking about like the little little. Sixteen still baby to me, but that's just our babies. But she is so listen. She teaches me a lot. She's very mature. But um, but that being the case, though, is as adults we have the responsibility to say, as their pancreas, these little five, fifth graders, you know, their their organs are literally still taking shape, right? Um. Do we really want to not do our part to protect that? Yeah, I mean, really? I think that's that's. I mean, I don't anything else to say to that. That's what we you got. We got. We got to think outside of ourselves. Your so, friend in particular, though, I'm not sure what their age is, but I will tell them about that. my age. Okay, because for black people, when we're talking about COVID deaths, a lot of times the narrative was that. It and, was- I, and I have somebody in a close family member that's my mama's age that it doesn't trust the government to so speak to speak to them to go. Well, let me talk to him because when we're talking about COVID deaths early on, there was this narrative that it's only old people and only sick people. And I was on Twitter every day saying, stop saying that because it's not true. It's not true for black people. Black people have higher death rates in every single age category. But the, the greatest disparity, meaning the difference in the number of white people versus black people dying, isn't in the very, very old. We're 1.8 times more likely to die if you're 85 and older. Right. The greatest disparity is actually in the younger groups. For instance, between the ages of 30 and 49, if you are black, you are six times more likely to die from COVID-19 than if you're a white. Mm. That's what the black black guy needs to understand. And especially black men. In the first six months of 2020, black men in particular lost three years of life expectancy. Wow. And if you think about it, the the most deaths actually didn't happen in the first six months of 2020. It happened in the last six months of 2020, right? That's when we really started to to have a lot of people dying. So Black men, in totality, we may see that 2020 cost you all five years of life. And if your life expectancy was already 72, you're looking at telling Black men, don't expect to live out of your 60s. Damn. Wow. And that's what I and that's why when I say I get amped up, I don't try to get amped up, but it's literally I I feel like we're screaming into the wind. And when I say we black, there's been a lot of black physicians out here screaming, saying, you guys, please listen, because we are seeing our people dying. You know, I mean, we're seeing people come into the emergency department. We're seeing the other side of it. And saying that no, and we're also using our forward thinking to say, okay, I just now saw you, and yes, you left from the emergency department, and no, hopefully you won't die, but I see the way you're breathing, and I see the way your heart is acting, and I'm thinking about you, and I'm thinking about seeing you in the ICU because your heart no longer functions, and now you now you need to be on a heart transplant list or, mm. or other, you know, other consequences that we can foresee that's what we're screaming to like, don't take this lightly because you are the very person that is more likely to die from this and you don't have to. Wow. Um, so, uh, two, two, two questions, uh, 
both very different though. Uh, first one about people that just don't trust the government. We, you, you and I, before this, <clears throat> we did a, a poll that you mentioned about the the ranking in terms of people that are less likely, uh, the least likely to take the vaccine. Uh, I believe it was Republicans, then it was Black folks, and then I forgot who the next, there was it Latinos? Yeah, it yeah. was. Yeah. yeah, so I mean, it was Republicans first, which makes sense because, you know, they had a president that said it was a made up virus. And of course, he still took the vaccine as soon as he can get it. Uh, And then, you know, I think black people, the reasons are all the reasons we dealt with racism in this country, the mistrust, the experimentations that's been done. I've had people tell me that, uh, yes, I know it's been around the world and and it's working, but they won't give us the same vaccines. I mean, how do we convince people that have so much mistrust built up some some of which is justified you know some of which is not but how do you how do you speak specifically to the black community about this when they say i i don't trust what they're doing i don't trust these pharmaceutical companies i don't trust them i don't trust them and i don't uh, they, they came up with it so fast i mean th- this is what i hear people say all the time like what do you say to to people to try to convince them uh, about things that have some so there there is some uh grain of truth in, in those things right it's a lot of truth. I mean, there's right. been medical injustice that's happened for generations that is still happening. I mean, um, we we can talk about Tuskegee, right? And that's what a lot of people bring up. But honestly, I don't even think Tuskegee is the main thing that people are thinking about when they say, I don't trust the government. But if we do talk about Tuskegee, what we have to remember is that Tuskegee wasn't experimenting with a drug. Tuskegee was related to the fact they told Black men to come in. They wanted to test them and see if they had bad blood. But really what they wanted to see was, do you have syphilis? And when they found out those men did have syphilis, they decided to not give them medicines. So this happened from 1932 to 1972. We knew that the cure for syphilis was in 1947 to be penicillin. So for 30 more years, the U.S. Public Health Service said, we just want to see what does syphilis do to the body? Yeah, we could treat you, but we're not going to. That was Tuskegee, it was the withholding of medicines. And because of that, 28 men died, another 100 died of of complications related to syphilis. They allowed 40 wives, at least 40, because we know these were young men too, so they may not have been married, they may have had girlfriends, but 40 wives um, contracted syphilis and 19 children that we know of was born with congenital syphilis, knowing full well we had a cure for it. That was Tuskegee. And what I don't want to happen is this to be another Tuskegee part two of where, again, the United States government has has we've studied why is that black and brown people are dying at higher rates. And when we have an intervention that could potentially save their lives, where black people are not given that intervention at the same rate. That's what I don't want to happen. Yeah. That will be Tuskegee part two. But for the, the naysay or for the people that have, you know, um, distrust of the government, what I always say is sit back and look and see who jumped over the line to get vaccinated. And you did have the very people that were like, oh, this is a a host and this is nothing more than a flu. But Trump was right there first in line and and his wife. We had Mitch McConnell and his wife. We had um, Lindsey Graham, Marco Rubio, who was young. And, you know, we had all these young people of power and influence and money jumping over the line before even old black people even had a chance to get vaccinated. That's what you got to sit back and look at to say, if it really was killing people, would they be clawing their ways up on the stage to say, oh yeah, videotape me. 
So um, so I can say this is the reason why I need to get the vaccine first, because Marco Rubio, you can wait. Wait your turn in line. Um, yep. but that's what they do. And so, but when it comes down to that, I think we also have to, the big push for a lot of us Black doctors was we said, we we know we're in the uh, phase 1A. We're going to be the first groups of people to do it. So videotape us. And literally, I put on, a, um, on my YouTube channel every day. I would just go and just say, this is how I'm feeling. Answer any questions that people had posted about it um, and talk about it. When my 81-year-old grandmother got vaccinated, she sent me a video. I put hers up there. When my, my mother got vaccinated, when my sisters got vaccinated, put their videos up there because... I think if we show these truth and transparency of we're people just like you, here it is, this is what it did to our bodies. Um, you know, take it for what it is instead of reading something on social media that you don't know if someone created that story, exactly. whatever they wanted to say, um, ask people who who did it. Yeah. And I understand when people talk about not trusting pharmaceutical companies, because another one of the uh, lines often repeated was, well, they're pharmaceutical companies and no, they're not to be trusted. However, <clears throat> back to your earlier point, the reason why they came up with the vaccine so quickly is really easy. I mean, the economy was being affected. It was affecting a lot of people and it was affecting money. So they were going to do anything they could and they put all of their energy, time and resources. That's why it came up so quickly. That's that's the answer. And, and it's even beyond that. See, this is the problem too. Trump really wanted to make this political because he needed to have something to try to save his presidency. And that's what people got to remember. So this whole even term of warp speed, what we know is that mRNA vaccines have been in use since 2003. You can can look up mRNA vaccines and targeted therapy for cancer treatments because the reason why it can be used for melanomas uh, in, in different types of cancer is if there's a cell in your body that we want to, to specifically target, if there's a protein on the outside of that cell, if that cancer, if that, for lack of a better um, analogy that people can kind of envision, if a woman has a breast cancer and we know that breast cancer, um, the cell looks slightly different than a normal breast cell, right? If we can train your body to recognize that abnormal cell, then instead of giving you chemotherapy that makes your whole body sick, then maybe we can give you an agent that tells your body, attack that one breast cell, that cancer cell that looks different that's what we want you to remove. So that's what they've been using for melanoma um, um, with mRNA vaccines. And with the coronavirus and with viruses in general, they started to look at use of mRNA vaccines for viruses with Ebola, with the um, with the SARS-CoV-1. SARS-CoV-2 is COVID-19. SARS-CoV-1 was back in 2003, right? Um, and that was mainly in the Asian continent. I think, I wanna say, unfortunately, about 800 people passed away or so. Um, back in 2003. So, but, they, but, but it got maintained. It didn't get to the point where it became a pandemic where millions of people died and everybody got it. Right. It wasn't as contagious as what we're seeing with, with SARS-CoV-2. But, um, but with that, the, there was this idea and, and you can look at during the Obama administration, they talked about, we need to prepare ourselves for a potential pandemic. So I think this is a really, really important point. They started preparing this technology a lot, a while ago. It wasn't that it just came out it came out of nowhere. I mean, they they definitely sharpened their their pencils and got right. down to it. But this has been going on for a long time. So when people say they came out of nowhere, that's actually not true. It's been they've been doing it for since 2003. I'm glad you said that because I didn't know that either. That's very important, I think, for the listeners to understand. Right. And it's, and it's one of these things if, if Trump couldn't say, oh, yeah, the Obama administration 
said we needed to prepare for a potential pandemic if one were to occur because of what happened with SARS-CoV-1. He can't say that because he can't give Obama any credit for even just smiling. So so when when this um, virus was detected, immediately what happened was they got a sample from someone who was infected with the um, with COVID. They determine what's the genetic sequence. So, you know, Amari, when they say like, you are not the father, that's because they look at someone's genetic sequence, right? Right. Same thing with this virus to say, what is the coding for this virus? And if I can take that now and take what a a piece of the virus. So if you're looking at, um, for lack of a better word, the mRNA vaccine basically just codes for the virus's coat. It's not okay. the whole virus. It literally just trains your body to recognize if you see this coat, then you're supposed ready. to get ready. Right. Um, so what Moderna and what Pfizer and with all the other groups did, they said, well, this is the coding for this virus's coat here. Put this and create this into this mRNA because uh, now you know the genetic sequence. So you literally can almost like a typewriter can type out the same message. You can create that coat um, coat coding over and over again to create this this vaccine. And that was it. Yeah. It's not only that that made it go quickly. It's also the process of typically for a drug, what you have to do is first do all the studies. And then once you prove it, you then create and and um, and make all the drug. Now, this is the difference because so many people were dying so fast. What the United States and not only the United States, but the entire globe said was, Instead of us waiting for all the clinical trials to be done, and then you make all the drugs and vaccines that are needed to vaccinate the entire globe, we're going to do the same thing at the same time. We are going to trust and just throw money into the fact that this vaccine may possibly work. If it doesn't work, wash our hands and we just have to toss that on the side and it's going to be a lot of money lost, but it's worth the risk that if you go through these clinical trials, and this vaccine actually does work, then on day one, we want to be ready with millions of doses of this vaccine readily available to put in the arms of people so we can keep them alive. So that's why it went from being year long processes to it running in parallel to each other and we can cut that time down significantly. Right, but we have enough, here's the thing, people tell me they're gonna wait. You've already waited. We got enough data to show that it's safe. Like you don't, you don't have to wait. You, if you're if you if you're listening to us right now, uh, the data's out. Millions and millions have already taken it. Yeah. Not only is it safe, it's it, it's 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 the it's the best thing you can do for your family, and we have all the data to back it up from all around the world. So you don't have to wait anymore. Uh, another thing I would add, uh, I would I would actually ask you people. I've, I've heard this, so I gotta I gotta just repeat these these things that I, I don't understand, but people say it, so I wanna I wanna just repeat it. How do we know that we're getting the right vaccines? People are, I've heard people say that, you know, they might, they're going to give different vaccines to different areas. How do we know, how can we know that we're getting the right vaccine? I've heard right. it a lot. Right. So a couple of different, um, one thing too, when we talk about millions of people right now in the United States, this is March 24th. Um, we've had over 128 million doses of vaccines have gone into the arms of people. 128 million doses. So um, that's just in the United States alone. That's not even around the world. So right. that just tells you how many people um, have actually, you know, and zero deaths from the vaccine. Right. Go ahead. I just want to make that. Uh, we have to keep saying that. Like, right, yes. For sure. Now, when we're saying this, go ahead. No, go ahead. Okay. One thing I can say um, 
Well, we're seeing this whole idea of how do I know I'm getting the right one and how do I trust, quote unquote, the man? The, the, the way I really approach this type of skepticism is to say this, what the man, what the government knows is that if it does not get this pandemic under control, right, that the health and wealth of our nation is literally tied to black and brown people actually being healthy this time. Think about it. When black and brown people in this pandemic early on started to die, when we could not go to work, the entire nation had to shut down. Black people only make up 13% of the population. Hispanic Americans only make up 17% of the population. So collectively, we're looking at 30%, 30% of the United States. And yet, when we were the ones to get sick, we weren't going to schools anymore. We weren't going, all the stores had to close. Um, yeah, our nation went into a financial spiral. The federal government literally had to, you know, the reserves had to dump trillions of dollars into the system to keep our nation afloat. That's how important um, the economic lift that black and brown people do. So trust me on this one, the government, <laughs> look on anything else, I no, I'm not going to say that, but but, but you can go to, I mean, there are places you can go to. Like if you, if you shop at Kroger's, why wouldn't you get a vaccine at Kroger? I tell people, well, are you going to eat Kroger? Or do you, do you eat at Kroger's? Do you get, do you go to Walgreens? Like, do you not get stuff there? Do you not trust anything you get there? You go to these places, you can get the vaccine. I mean, I'm actually with you for the reasoning. Let me, I, I want to shift to one, to one other point before we get ready to close. What can, how do we approach this with some optimism too? Like we're in this with the optimistic point of view. We are, uh, We've lived in a lot of fear and some reasonable fear, but some of it, I think people have also been afraid to, 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 to do, to do things they need to be able to do. Like at some point our, our kids can't get vaccinated, but I think kids are going to eventually have to go back to school. Like at some point, um, we're going to have to figure out how to move forward and, 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 and balance our lives out. Like how do you advise people just to move out of the fear and, and just move forward here? Uh, I think that's that's that that that's uh, a big underlying condition. A lot of us have been traumatized. Period. We were already traumatized, and this has been a even more challenging year. Like, how do you advise people moving forward to pivot back to normal, or what the next normal even looks like? Right. Um. Well, what I hope the next normal looks like is um, more sense of community. I mean, if, if there's a silver lining in 2020, I think it was that we did lean on each other for the emotional support, not only during the protests and, and thinking of, you know, um, George Floyd and, and Breonna Taylor um, and Ahmed, but it was also in the grief of losing family members. I mean, yeah. at this point, every black person knows someone who's died from COVID-19 or been severely impacted by COVID-19, right? Um, one in every three, at least definitely know. And then if not, you know, somebody who knows of somebody who did, right? Um, and I think, I think the thing that's going to get us through and the hope of it all is that we we did survive it. Um, we will never be the same ever in our nation. I hope our I hope our nation never goes back to what it was because there was a lot of stuff we need to fix. Um, but as a group, I think it just is another notch on the belt on the belt of black people to say we survived that, too. Yeah. We survived slavery. We we survived, um, you know, Jim Crow. We we survived the pandemic. We we've survived all this stuff. And how do we want this thing to shape us? What did it expose as far as the flaws within our society that negatively impact our life? 
and how are we going to hold elected officials accountable for that? And not only hold them accountable, how are we going to run for politics in order to fix it ourselves? I think that's what we're going to see. And we have seen a big push in, um, in us. Being- are you going to run for something? You would be great. You know, listen, I, I mean, I've always, I am, I am eventually, I just have to figure out Wonderful. when I can actually do that. But yeah, but, but it is important because we know health is political. Education is political. Um, all this stuff ties back into what policy said is okay to treat people this way versus that way. So yeah, Dr. Ebony J. Hilton. Goodstock Consulting, future senator of some state somewhere. Uh, It was great having you on. Thank you.